Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On this edition of Primetime Politics, the latest federal modeling shows good news and bad. The bad news, the number of critically ill Canadians continues to rise. The good news, the stricter public health measures mean we may soon be seeing a turning point, at least in some provinces. New testimony on sexual misconduct in Canada's military renews demands for change. A longtime advocate is skeptical of reports of the force's latest action plan. And our journalist panel weighs in on the latest on the pandemic and the Trudeau government's handling of the crisis. But we start on Friday with the Prime Minister getting vaccinated. With Sophie Grégoire Trudeau, they both received their first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was administered at a local Ottawa pharmacy. Meanwhile, back at his Friday press conference, Justin Trudeau was pressed on the government's record on preventing infection from foreign travellers, and specifically Thursday's announcement on a ban of flights from India and Pakistan. Uh, It has been clear over the past uh, uh, couple of weeks that there is a disturbing pattern of a much higher caseload from India and Pakistan than from other countries. And uh, those thresholds uh, were looked at by the public health agency and others, and a determination was made uh, that there needed to be further steps taken, which uh, we've been working on this past week and announced yesterday. Joining me now are three members of Parliament from the different parties. Adam von Kuverden is the Parliamentary Secretary and the Liberal Member for the Ontario Riding of Milton. Eric Duncan is a Conservative MP for the Eastern Ontario Riding of Stormont, Dundas, South Glengarry. And Jenny Kwan is the NDP Member for the Riding of Vancouver East and her party's Deputy Health Critic. All three of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Okay, and Adam von Kuverden, let's start with um, this announcement last night, uh, Thursday night, of this total uh, travel ban on direct flights from India and Pakistan. Earlier in the week, the government, both government officials and public health officials, uh, had made it sound as if the government was not contemplating such a measure. And then by Thursday night, we have the announcement. Some people are suggesting that you're just, this is only responding to public pressure, to political and public pressure from the opposition parties and from premiers like Premier uh, Legault and Premier Ford of Ontario. How do respond to that? Well, since day one, Canada has had some of the strictest travel measures around the globe, and this is a response to uh, growing concerns and growing numbers. Uh, as you're well aware, every traveler that arrives in Canada at the airport is is tested, and as the test uh, tests indicated, that some of those uh, positive tests were coming from the region that you indicated, uh, both India and Pakistan, uh, measures needed to be taken. So this was a swift decision made by the government uh, in response to good evidence and facts and the evidence coming forth. Okay, uh, Eric Duncan, your response to that? The government says this was something that basically took study and with the increasing number of reports, that's, that explains the timing. Well, during question period yesterday, they denied they were going to make any change and all you had to do was watch last night the government's announcement. It was a last minute thing on Zoom. It was crashing. They were all over the map in terms of speeches uh, and in trying to get that coordinated. So it speaks to the lack of organization on the issue. I will say this, by now being over a year into this pandemic, the government should have very clear benchmarks and targets set for hotspot countries that come up around the world. This should not have caught the country, you know, Canada and the government 
off guard. And unfortunately, the challenges with India and Pakistan next week, there may be another country next month. This is not the first time we face this. And it just speaks to the disorganization, particularly with the start of the day yesterday, the way that it ended. Uh, it was just very frustrating. There should be very clear benchmarks. It shouldn't matter the country. It should go by hotspot. And there should be measurements. There should be targets. There should be data that's very clear and public on when and how we deal with these things. And yesterday was just an absolute chaotic uh, gong show, for lack of a better word, in terms of uh, the announcement and the start of the day okay. and the end of the day. Okay, Jenny Kwan, uh, your reaction in terms of where things stand now in terms of protecting Canadians from, let's call it, imported infection from the arrival of variants and infections? Well, I think that the government's response has been a mixed bag of responses. There's not been consistent messages uh, or information. I mean, really, on the uh, travel restrictions uh, on this issue, um, the the government, even when we were having the emergency debate and when we raised the issue, I asked the question directly uh, to a parliamentary secretary, and he defended uh, the decision of not moving forward with that. So, you know, the government's message at best uh, has been confusing. The other thing is this. How do you justify, for example, in terms of border measures, those who fly in uh, would be required to have the mandatory uh, uh, quarantine, and those who drive through the border would not be. So when you have confusing approaches like that, Canadians don't really know what to make of it. And, and if we want to send a clear message, right, that we need to take this seriously, we all need to abide by the uh, health protocols and, and, and so on, you have to have clear, concise message. And the federal government has not been able to deliver that. And let me just say this, if we have to do a complete shutdown to uh, really address the issue, then the government should be looking at all of these issues so that we can, uh, you know, stop the third wave from going further. And people are already talking about fourth wave now, right? Okay. And so we really need to take action and consistent action from the federal government, real leadership, and that's what's lacking. Okay, Adam, I covered, and this is something I know as an MP you must confront because the average person, there's a lot of people talk about it, but in comparing, and Jenny Kwan brought it up, but in comparing the border measures and quarantine, uh, as you mentioned, Canada has uh, among the strictest quarantine measures among the countries, but you do have this anomaly of people driving across the land border. They're not subject to that three-day quarantine in a quarantine hotel, uh, basically, and we're, there are more and more reports of people doing it increasingly on the American border, and even people coming to the states to be able to transit across the land border. How do you respond when, when constituents are, are legitimately concerned by that? Well, I don't think anybody's confused. Perhaps the NDP are confused as to what the restrictions are, but we've been very, very clear. Right, since but in the terms start of the example, pandemic, but in terms of the example, absolute, I give you. We've been very clear since the beginning of this pandemic that people should not be traveling, that the past year has not been a time for travel, and that's why we've had the strictest travel measures in the world, including a mandatory two-week uh, quarantine. And that's why travel continues to account for less than 2% of cases. So I think that we should be looking at the, 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 the reasons and the cause for the transmission that we've seen in communities. It's consistently not been travel. Uh, and with respect to, you know, driving over the border, there are many Canadians coming home from vacation right now, certainly in my constituency as well. And the instructions from Canada Border Services, who have done an exemplary job, I should say, over the past year have been exactly the same. Your job is to now go home and to self-isolate uh, for 14 days. And it is it is not uh, ambiguous, as my, my colleague from the NDP indicated. It has been consistent. 
and very, very clear to Canadians, and the instructions for Canadians have been, as well as the message from the Prime Minister since day one of this pandemic, this is not the time to travel. Okay, briefly, I want to ask you about another measure, though, and that is, and it came up in question period again today, and that is, is rapid testing. The government several months ago committed to increasing and, and a widespread implementation of rapid testing on the Canadian-Canada-U.S. border for essential workers. A lot of truckers associations, a lot of people who are essential workers are saying there is no evidence of widespread rapid testing, and that would be so much easier and faster and give an assurance of safety. Where is the government and where is the country in terms of that rapid testing deployment? Well, we've consistently relied on the best tests and I've met with trucking companies here in my riding and I can tell you that my constituents and the ones that work in the trucking industry and there's many here in Milton are satisfied with the degree that they are taken care of and we've had zero cases uh, from that company here in Milton who are doing everything they can to, uh, to transit across the border and bring us our, our necessary goods or vital goods uh, so that the supply chain can uh, can can be maintained. Um, so I think that we've consistently made decisions based on evidence and facts. Uh, on, in terms of, uh, of rapid tests, we've made millions and millions of rapid tests available to the provinces, and they continue to sit in storage in many cases, which is, is, is unfortunate to see because they are available and they should be used for exactly the purposes that you're saying. Uh, but on, with regards to the border, I'd like to just commend the Canada Border Services Agency for doing such an exemplary job over the past year under such tremendously difficult circumstances. Okay, Eric Duncan, your position, uh, it has been pointed out that, that border crossings do constitute a very small amount of the infection, about 1.1 to 1.5% uh, of infections uh, cases in Canada. And we have 8,000 cases a day cropping up through our own community spread. What more needs to be done as opposed to just the border controls? We need more vaccines to get to our provinces, to get in arms and to build up uh, immunity on this. That is the number one thing. And that failure lies with the government and not being able to deliver that. And I agree with what was, you know, and how it was said. We have to ask why we're in this third wave and why we're in this situation. And I think it's because we don't have enough vaccines. And to the point, we don't have an organized, clear, data-driven with benchmarks and triggers to set off how we deal with these hotspots. Yesterday should not have happened when it came to this announcement. From the denial in the morning and to Jenny's point, the night before in the emergency debate, no, no, there's no need for this. Border measures don't work. It's only 2% of cases to a hastily called news conference at 5 o'clock that was an absolute PR disaster to going out and saying, yes, we're going to bring these measures in. So it's all over the place and there should be if we're relying on the data and science at eight o'clock in the morning yesterday when they were saying oh um it's not a problem we don't need to do it they were then quoting and saying well yeah we saw the data and it was a 50 percent positivity rate i believe that was in pakistan and why they'd added them in we were very concerned well you had that data in the morning then you decided that night that that was the benchmark and needed to restrict for 30 okay. days a new date given my point being is the same as i said before clear timelines clear definitions, clear triggers would eliminate a lot of this miscommunication and okay. chaos we Gen saw yesterday. Jenny Kwan, uh, last word to you. Uh, a lot of Canadians didn't get to see that late night debate, uh, emergency debate on the, uh, on the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic and Canada's response to it. Uh, if you had, your party had one overriding recommendation, something that's not being done that you feel needs to be done, what would it be? Well, the one overriding recommendation that we're calling for is for the government to uh, invoke the Emergencies Act, uh, particularly in the situation with Ontario. Uh, there is just such a devastating situation going on in there, and we need the federal government to show leadership to go and help uh, deal with the uh, spread of the uh, virus, uh, the COVID virus uh, in 
uh, in Ontario and to provide the support that is so very necessary uh, in Ontario. Uh, the, the other thing, too, I just want to get back to this uh, question about, you know, travel does not really impact things. I have to remind uh, the, the, the Liberal uh, members and the government that when we first learned of COVID-19, the government's assessment that they were using to determine what should be done was a domestic assessment and not an international one. And that's been backed up by uh, 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 by independent The Auditor General's report, yeah. Okay, well, th that is uh, the time we have. I want to thank you. And no doubt all three of us, uh, all four of us, will be speaking with that about this issue again. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. Have a good weekend. Thank guys. you very much. The issue of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces continues to reverberate around Ottawa and the country. On Thursday night, a female major in the forces testified before a parliamentary committee about a long-term relationship with former Chief of Defence Staff Jonathan Vance. Major Kelly Brennan says that Vance told her, quote, he was untouchable and that he, quote, owned the military police. She also testified that he fathered two children with her and told her not to discuss their relationship. Today, the committee also heard from a senior advisor to the Prime Minister, Elder Marquez, who said he was unable to follow up on another allegation involving General Vance because the female complainant would not pursue the matter. Joining me now to look at the latest is retired Lieutenant Colonel Michel Drapeau. Uh, Monsieur Drapeau, Colonel Drapeau, welcome and thanks for taking the time. Thank you. You've represented several members of the forces. You've been an advocate on this issue for years. You've watched this whole process. I'd like to start by getting your impression of the latest testimony you heard. What did you make of it? I'm, I'm not surprised by it, unfortunately. Uh, I, I have represented a number of sexual assault victims. I still do. And, uh, and I've seen uh, you know manifestation of what is being said now on so many, so many levels. Uh, so when uh, Major Brendan uh, suggests yesterday in her testimony that uh, she would have been informed that uh, General Vance had full control uh, and uh, was untouchable. Um, early impression, I think, is correct and, and shared by a number of other victims. I mean, we have to remember that the military police is like a company police. It's owned by the military. It's made up of military members. It reports to the vice chief of the defense staff, who is one door away from the chief of defense staff. So, of course, uh, the rank and file will would know. And that's one of the reasons why many of them don't report the crimes, because they don't have a sense of confidence into the military justice system that includes the military police. And and they don't have a sense of confidence that their complaint will be handled properly and, and, and proceed uh, along the way as it should, as it would, if this were before an independent external tribunals. So I'm not surprised what she said. She's just the latest one to say it and say it with much force and vigor. Okay, I want to take a step forward because what is also being reported on, and it's an interesting report, uh, CBC's Murray Brewster, longtime military reporter, reporter on the military, said that he's got a document which describes the military preparing to create a new position, a chief of professional conduct and culture. And according to the document, which I think he's let you see, uh, that person would lead and oversee how the forces address the issue of racism and sexism, sexual misconduct. He would oversee the winding down of Operation Honor and the creation of what comes next. You've had a look at that draft document, from what I understand. What do you make of it? I have I had a look at it. It's just 52 pages. I mean, uh, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. And the audacity of the Defense Department 
after almost every testimony that's been presented before uh, before parliamentary committees, both the House and the Senate, asking that an external review, some accountability take place, and then they have the audacity to come up with a creation of a new office uh, with a new Lieutenant General and a, and a civilian ADMs and to concentrate everything under the chain of command because this individual would report to both the Chief of the Defence Staff and the Deputy Minister. So, uh, I mean, the name of it, it's, it's, uh, it's really Operation Honor 2. Uh, it's, it's an upgrade. It's a, it's a wider mandate. And they're going to be looking at everything, uh, at uh, racism uh, and discrimination and sexual assault, sexual misconduct and so on. So it's going to be, again, a, um, a kind of artificial um, movement activity level. But it seems they're going to do, and, 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 and the closing words will be, trust us. We know what we're doing, where to get there. That's what they did in response to the 2015 Madame Deschamps report. And uh, it had no independence, no real result, and it was deemed to be uh, by certainly the rank and file as a failure. So, so, uh, so the default the, the, the so the fault then for you is that it's still within, it's still in house. It still answers to and is part of the military establishment and, and doesn't have. There's not an independent element. I mean, in the document though, too, they also say that this person would cooperate with the government's promised external review of these issues. Yeah, and there is a, a couple of sentences within this 52 pages document. Uh, I mean, it was written in such and such a obscure language, it's kind of difficult to read, but a couple of times they referred to a review authority, and the review authority would be doing two things. It will be re reviewing the culture at D&D, first, and second, making recommendations. If you bring the two of those together, no authority, no oversight, no control, D&D has full control over it. If they have full control, they will tell us, us being the media and parliament, what they believe we need to hear. So you and then we will have to wait until it surfaces again in months or years from now with another series of sexual assault and sexual scandal. And then we'll come to the conclusion which we need to come now. There is a requirement to have parliamentary oversight and government parliamentary oversight, there needs to be an external control, and they need to be in order to provide trust and confidence to the men and women serving in uniform, they have to have the ability to report anytime they are subject to some form of sexual assault to an outside body who okay. will investigate and will make sure, in fact, that their complaint is, is looked at uh, professionally and no reprisal action is taken against them. Until we do this, we're going to be in the same boat we are in at the moment. Okay, last question, just a yes or no answer. Uh, today, when asked about this issue, the Prime Minister, on, in both answers, said we will have something to announce on this front very soon, shortly, he said, or very soon in both answers. Uh, is there a possibility that the government will, though, fulfill the promise of an independent body and, and, and short-circuit this, this military process? I have a low level of, of confidence. It's been three months since some of the allegations have surfaced, and we have yet to hear anything, anything, anything of substance from this government, anything. So uh, let's hope, let's hope that uh, springtime will be, uh, will be productive and we'll have something to put our teeth on. At the moment, it's been nothing. The only government spokesman we have had is the Ministry of National Defence and nothing substantive have come from him at the moment. Okay, Michel, uh, Michel Drapeau, Colonel Drapeau, thank you very much for taking the time. Okay, you're welcome.
Well, joining me now to look at the week in federal politics are two members from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Mia Rabson is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Katie O'Malley is a veteran journalist and writer for iPolitics. Both of you veteran reporters. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Let's start with, I mean, the, the, what overshadows everything, obviously, is COVID-19 and the pandemic. And I just want to give a few headlines today. We did learn that uh, in terms of our vaccine supply, we're not going to be counting on Moderna and AstraZeneca. Those supplies are very much up in, up in the air after the next one from Moderna. Uh, we do know that we're going to be getting lots and lots and lots of Pfizer vaccine. We know that we're going to be buying a lot of Pfizer booster vaccine in 2023-2024. And we also know that NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, has agreed to do what the provinces have already gone ahead and done, and that is to give uh, the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, to people 30 years and over. With my MPs, I talked about the decision to ban flights from Pakistan and India. Both of you, where do you want to start? What do you make of it in terms of where we are in this pandemic? Uh, Mia, you follow this, you've been following it for a year and a, a, year and a bit. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, on the vaccine front, um, the anxiety over deliveries continues. Thankfully, Pfizer has become very reliable um, since their little blip in February, and they have been delivering what they said they were going to do, and actually they keep increasing. So next week, we'll see a million doses for them, from them, and after that, it'll be two million doses a week. So Pfizer is solid, and that's sort of helpful for some of the anxiety. But the production problems continue for Moderna. We aren't at the moment knowing when we're going to get in any other vaccines after that. I think we will probably hear good news, but it's on a little bit of a wait and see basis. Um, and of course, this week we saw, as you mentioned, you know, many provinces, not all of them, lowered the age limit to, or uh, eligibility for AstraZeneca. And uh, people as young as 40 sort of raced out and all of a sudden our vaccination numbers like sort of went through the roof, uh, record numbers in Ontario, record numbers in Quebec. That's probably going to slow down in the next couple of weeks because just, the doses just aren't going to be there. And so expect a bit more anxiety to come. But on the good news, I did hear Dr. Teresa Tam this morning say that our uh, that the sec third wave, I guess we're in now, yeah. is seemingly starting to come under control. It's still out of control. It's still not good. We're still seeing way too many people in hospital and ICU, but there's the, the infection rate, the growth of that infection rate, I guess, is uh, is actually slowing. And that's good news. And she's saying if we can get the vaccine supplies, we can get them into arms and keep this trend going, we might actually have a summer. So a little glimmer of hope in there, but just still lots of wait and see, which I mean, honestly, in this pandemic, wait five minutes, everything seems to change. Yeah. Katie, where do you want to go with this? I mean, there's so much to, to unwrap or to, to explore on this. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually been really interested to watch the political reaction. And I noticed that the opposition parties this week were really hammering home on almost the uh, instant retroactive, wondering why we didn't have those vaccines in place in January and February, which they sort of contend could have either prevented or ma done major containment on the third wave. So I'm interested to see how that political debate continues, because as Mia says, it's so unpredictable. I mean, it seems as though one day we have great news and it sounds like we're going to have floods of vaccines coming in. And then two days later, oh, there's a production upset somewhere or, you know, there's suddenly an increased demand in another market and we're not able to get it. So it really is incredibly volatile. I think it's probably encouraging in general to the sort of psyche of the nation to see those vaccination numbers go up, to see our little line go up in terms of the number of, of doses given out and the, the percent of the population that is vaccinated. 
but it is it's very it's very tenuous as far as if you look at it from the polit from a political perspective i feel like the liberals had an okay week in terms of the way the news rolled out and you know people getting those vaccines and that happening but that could really easily shift and the question over the variants and the borders is I was actually kind of surprised the government acted as quickly as it did mm -hmm. because they've been reluctant to move that uh, aggressively in the past. But I think that you know, seeing the numbers come in and seeing the, uh, the those case those variant case counts go up, they realized that they really had to do something now. But if you look at sort of the you know the the, the path of infection, the next move and I think the next call, the next debate is going to be over whether to really crack down on interprovincial flights and interprovincial yeah. travel because that does seem to be where a lot of the danger is. No, and it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, obviously my, with my MPs panel, a lot of the political play this week in Parliament was was pressing the government to bring in border you know controls when it comes to Pakistan and India, and we saw the government respond. Uh, weigh in on that though, Mia, because I mean the, the figures are still there that the actual number uh, the percentage of infection is very low by international by international flights and that the concern with India was not just the 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 variants it's just the sheer number of yeah. infections in India the variants are very much becoming blown up in terms of this debate we in yeah. well I went on a little bit of a rant this week because I thought it was irresponsible of people to uh, to, to sorry the phone keeps ringing on my oh, desk right. The news never stops. Um, anyway, I thought it was irresponsible to talk about this as a double mutant variant. It was, it was, uh, it was absolutely sort of throwing people off. It was. Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes someone's going to stop phoning Yeoman's me and I'm duty. actually be able to get this out. So anyway, the double mutant variant I thought was very misleading and actually kind of dangerous. All of these variants have mutants. And this particular one from India, we don't know a lot about it yet. But as you said, there's just so many cases. What's happening in India right now is just heartbreaking. It's just it like to see the, the, the cases, the people, the deaths. Like it's it's I mean, Canada offered help to India today, PPE. Um, anything that we can maybe do to help them because the situation there is really, really bad. And what they were seeing coming in was that half of the cases of, of COVID that were positive at the border from flights were coming from India. If you look at that list that they produce, multiple cases on every flight, it seemed, that was coming in. And they really, the pressure was high. It was one thing the federal government actually has some control of in this, because a lot of the time they're being asked to do stuff, they don't really have a lot of control over unless they invoke the Emergencies Act, which this prime minister is absolutely dead set mm -hmm. against doing. The border is something he can actually do. I was a bit surprised to see them do it because they have been so reluctant yeah. to do it. Um, but the pressure was on. They needed to look like they were doing something. And, and whether this has an impact, who knows? But at I'm least it is. It's something, Katie. On terms, in terms of the politics, some people have referred to the fact that uh, Doug Ford began this week in on such a low note, and some people mm -hmm. have managed to point out the fact that him signing that joint letter with uh, Quebec Premier Francois Legault, and then being able to claim responsibility, at least partially for he says getting the federal government to act on this, really diverted attention from Doug Ford's arguably worst week in politics. I'm not sure he's entirely out of the worst week woods yet. It was definitely, um, it, it was a victory in the sense that, yeah, they could point to that and say that we got something done. But to be honest, I think the federal government was already moving in that direction. Yeah. And that's why it did happen so quickly. I think that the letter was not the, uh, that wasn't really the trigger. It was already coming. One thing and one question that I'd really like to see kind of delved into is, we had this whole quarantine system in place where people were supposed to get negative tests before they got on board a plane and they were yeah. supposed to stay in these uh, these government-run uh, uh, not detention facilities. Quarantine these, hotels. These, uh, these yeah. quarantine facilities, exactly. 
I'm kind of wondering, did that not work? Is that what we're getting? Did they work? And that's where we're getting the numbers. And in fact, these cases are not being transmitted elsewhere. I'd like to hear a little more detail on why it was that what seems like a fairly comprehensive sounding plan to prevent variants from making it into Canada without shutting the borders completely doesn't seem to have maybe worked as well as Mm -hmm. we were led to. It might. So I, that, that's something, you know, the eventual independent inquiry into the yeah. COVID response I think, um, probably spent a couple of weeks on that. I think me and I will both weigh in on the fact that you can develop symptoms while you're on a plane and that they can turn up yeah. by the time you arrive. Well, and then and actually detecting them is actually a success that you've detected them when people arrive in quarantine. Mia. It's also worth noting that Canada's quarantine is three days. Yeah. In Australia, in New Zealand, even in Britain, where they've had maybe a bit more success at keeping things out, it's 10 days in Britain. It's 14 days in Australia. It uh, You don't get COVID necessarily in three days. If you yeah. just were exposed right before you got on a plane, it's not going to get picked up. Okay. I asked this for those statistics, and they don't actually know how many people who've left quarantine then tested positive after yeah. they left the quarantine, and that's a problem. Okay, on that note, I want to thank both of you. I want to wish you uh, uh, good health. Stay safe, and thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's it for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. On behalf of all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching and have a great weekend.